Well, you can grab a seat and good morning. Uh, my name is Jacob Smith. I'm the college pastor here at Anderson. I just want to welcome you to Grace. Uh, if you're joining us here for maybe the first time, if you're still new here, uh, I will tell you, you've, this is a wonderful week to join. Uh, this you know, is the perfect combination of spring break and daylight savings. Therefore, you have joined the remnant, right? This is our few but faithful uh, who have taken up residence in the stronghold. And so we are so glad that you are here. Uh, and I, I'm excited to share with you essentially uh, what God has been teaching me through Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, if you have a Bible, if you want to go there on your phone, we'll be wor- working through this chapter uh, in an attempt to better understand what God tells us about comfort. Uh, because the reality is that every single one of us, we reach moments in life when we all need comfort. We all have moments where we see our own deficiency, where we see our own need, where we uh, don't have the strength that's necessary in the moment, and, and we need someone or something to come alongside of us and offer the encouragement and the support that we, that we need. And, and so this is a, a stark reality. This is a harsh truth uh, that I see play out in my own life. It's something I see play out in my family all the time because we are in a season of life. My wife and I have three young children, five, three, and one. Uh, and so because of their age is because of just their life stage. I mean, there, there's a lot of need, a lot of opportunity to provide comfort. Sometimes uh, it's my parent, my children present a need for comfort when they fall off their bike, right? We go out and we ride our bikes in the street and it, riding a bike is hard. And so my five-year-old and three-year-old, they will take tumbles and they'll skin a knee, or they'll bump their head or whatever. And they will, in those moments, cry out for comfort, right? They'll say, Father, please come provide the comfort that I so desperately need in this moment, right? They say it in other, you know, different words, but that's the gist of it. Uh, and I see it play out in my youngest. My youngest son just turned one, uh, and he has discovered that walking is really hard, right? Walking is a difficult task, and so uh, he will just fall just as he wakes, makes his way around the home, and, or if he skips a nap, like in this moment. And uh, those are moments when I see, you know, there, there's no getting around the fact that they need comfort. They need someone to step alongside. They need someone to support and encourage them, to comfort them uh, in their pain. And and I reached a point a couple weeks ago uh, where I needed comfort, where uh, on a Saturday afternoon, right around lunchtime, uh, I received a call and came to realize that a student that I'd been meeting with uh, a lot that year, that um, I'd been working with through a variety of struggles, in that call on a Saturday afternoon, uh, I found out that he had uh, just a few days prior uh, taken his own life. And um, it was, that was kind of the, the culmination, it was the end result of a long time of struggling with very uh, severe mental illness. And uh, it, it was hard. That was, that was a shocking uh, moment, that was a shocking decision. And I needed comfort in that. And, and I needed comfort again uh, this past week when last Sunday after we wrapped up our college service, um, I got an email that informed me that a former student that I had gotten to know really well, had met with a number of times while he was a student, um, saw him come to faith uh, and uh, I had baptized him. That just a few days before that, uh, he had also taken his own life. And it was uh, in light of the fact that he was looking at really hard consequences that were coming up um, that were based on past mistakes that he had made. And so 
generally, when I'm preparing a message, uh, I, I start by, by asking the Lord to give me a burden, put it on my heart. What, what do people need to hear? Right? Where, what's the question that we're wrestling with? And, and many times uh, what the Lord will do is he'll, he'll use that maybe presenting need uh, to then develop and, and raise my awareness to my own need in that through the week, through the preparation. So, you know, maybe it's a message on patience. I will find myself, you know, throughout the week just being like, why is this taking so long? And I'm like, oh, oh yeah, patience, right? Like that's, that's what kind of the norm. Uh, but every once in a while, I find myself in moments, really, or in weeks, starting by asking myself, well, what, what, do, what do I need to hear? And this is definitely one of those weeks. Uh, this is one of those weeks where I've, I've been wrestling with this idea, with this question of where, where is our comfort found? And, uh, so, you know, this morning, uh, probably more than many other weeks, I'm, I'm really preaching to myself. I'm, I'm trying to speak truth over myself. So um, I, I appreciate you being here uh, to <laughs> just, you know, hear me talking to myself. But at the end of the day, I, I think we, we come to these moments, we come to these questions... Uh, in, in moments of pain, moments of struggle, we, we, we ask ourselves, well, if God can help, right, if he has the ability, and if he cares about us, right, if he has the affection, um, then why am I still in pain? Well, why, are, why are these events transpired the way that they have? Why are, the, why are these people making these decisions that they've made? Why, why is this illness here? Why did this investment fall through? Why, why am I stuck in this struggle? And the answer in Scripture is very simple. That our God uses our pain uh, for a greater purpose. And, and that's a really simple answer for our minds. But I, I find that it's still a very meaningful struggle for our hearts. Especially when that cr- question so often comes out of a wound that's, that's present. So we, we all reach moments where we need comfort. And so the, the question that we want to address this morning, that I want to draw out of Isaiah 40, is, is where is our comfort found? Because this is an issue, this is a question that, that arises um, many times because we're running to other, we run to lots of sources, right? We run to lots of different sources to try to find comfort that will distract us or maybe diminish or despair for a time. And maybe it's an activity, or maybe it's a substance, or maybe it's an app on our phone. Um, but none of those sources really provide the consistent comfort that our souls long for. And so where is our comfort found? Uh, because we have moments where we are finding ourselves frustrated, right, by the things in life that are uncontrollable. We find ourselves fearful about the things in our futures that are unknowable, and we find ourselves failed consistently by people or events or ourselves who are, in fact, unreliable. And it's this type of moment where Israel, the nation of Israel, found itself as, as Isaiah was writing, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writing this letter, writing this letter to these people, he was addressing the fact that they were, in fact, uh, for the first 39 chapters of this book, he's writing about the, the judgment, about the destruction and the, the, 
the uh, displacement that they are going to experience because of their sin, because of the sin of the nation, because of the sin of their kings, of their rulers. And, and he spends 39 chapters unpacking just all the ways that God was going to bring judgment and, and you know, pain to his people. He was going to allow them to suffer because of the consequences of their actions. But in Isaiah chapter 40, what's so beautiful is he completely changes direction. He starts in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1, if you look with me, by saying, comfort, comfort my people. So God is addressing these, an unnamed messenger, a messenger who we later find out uh, is somewhat personified by John the Baptist, that the, all the Gospels will connect John the Baptist to this messenger because he prepared a way for the people uh, to know Jesus Christ, who would in fact bring this perfect, ultimate comfort. But, but he's not named in Isaiah 40, and God's simply giving him a message, because that's what's most important, right? It's not the messenger that's important in this chapter, in this passage. It's, it's the message itself. And so God says, this is going to be a message of comfort. So speak kindly to Jerusalem and tell her that her time of warfare is over, that her punishment is completed, for the Lord has made her pay double for all her sins. He's telling them, yes, there is pain, there is consequence, there's judgment that's going to come about because of your mistakes, because of your sin. He says, but there will come a day when that war is over, when that punishment is complete, when you've paid your due, when justice has been fulfilled. So you can be comforted by this. And so a voice cries out, well, in the wilderness, clear away for the Lord. Construct in the desert a road for our God. Every valley must be elevated. Every mountain and hill must be leveled. The rough terrain will become a level plain. The rugged landscape, a wide valley, and the splendor of the Lord will be revealed. And all people will see it at the same time, for the Lord has decreed it. It's this imagery of a, of a triumphant king marching into his capital city. And, and as he does that, he wants the people to clear a path, to create a road or a, a pathway for him to walk down. And God takes it to such the, such the extreme that he says, we're going to actually, we're going to make sure that no one has an obstructed view in that we're going to lower. If it's a mountain, you got to lower it. If it's a valley, you got to bring it up. It says, we are going to level the field so that all people everywhere will see the splendor of the Lord so that it can be revealed to everyone simultaneously. And so a voice cries out, or a voice says, cry out. And another voice asks, well, what should I cry out then? And the first one responds, all people are like grass. And all their promises are like the flowers in the field. And the grass dries up and the flowers wither when the wind sent by the Lord blows on them. And surely humanity is like this grass. And yet while the grass dries up and the flowers wither, the decree of our God is forever reliable. See, in the midst of this comfort, there's still a hard truth, which is that we in and of ourselves, we cannot create things that last for eternity, right? He compares humanity to, you know, the, the grass, the vegetation that pops up in a wilderness, in a desert. And so he says it's, it's when the hot wind blows across these things, these flowers and these fields and these grass, it just, it, it eliminates not just them, but any even evidence that they ever even existed. This is like humanity, the, our best efforts, the little kingdoms that we can build for ourselves. He goes in further in the next few verses and talks about how our nations and our rulers, all of these things will pass away. 
But the comfort is not found in our own ability. The comfort is found in the fact that the decree of our God is forever reliable. Our comfort can be found in our God's proven character and who he is and what he does. That's where our comfort should be found. That's where we should run. That's what we depend upon. And so over the course of this chapter, Isaiah is going to lay out different ways that the Lord has revealed himself, different ways that that God has revealed his character that is so trustworthy, that should be so comforting. And and we're going to draw just three of them this morning. We'll see that God comforts us through his arrangement of our world, through his awareness of our need, and through his activity in our lives. And so if we jump down to verse 12, we see that uh, in speaking about the Lord and about his nature, uh, the messenger is asking, who has measured out the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or, or carefully measured the sky or carefully weighed the soil of the earth or weighed the mountains in a balance or the hills on scales. He's talking about the incomparable nature of our God. That he has actually arranged and created our world with incredible precision and with this unbelievable power, right? He uses these contrasting elements like, like the smallest grain of dirt, right? The soil compared to the mountains. He's weighed both of them from both the grand, huge mountain range to just the tiniest little speck of dust. Our God has put all of it in its place. He has arranged all of it. And this is an act, this is an accomplishment that's hard for us to even grasp. And yet all of it, it, it expresses the totality of God's careful and effortless workmanship in his creation. And he has put these pieces in place for a reason. It says that who comp- comprehends the mind of the Lord or gives him instruction as his counselor? From whom does he receive directions? Who teaches him the correct way to do things or imparts knowledge to him or instructs him in skillful design? You see, the nations around Israel at this time, they believed in a multitude of gods. And, and all these gods, even the, the big ones who like maybe had hands in creation, uh, they needed the help of other gods. And they needed the, the advice or the instruction or they depended upon other forces to, to counteract or to balance out uh, their, their work. And yet Isaiah is saying to Israel, our God is not like that. That's, that is a false perception of how this world came about. He says, we have a God, we serve a God, we worship a God who needs no one, who is in fact, in and of himself, perfectly capable of arranging all of creation, who has untold, unimaginable power and ability. And this is a, a power that, that should bring us incredible comfort. A power that is proven through his perfect arrangement of our world. Uh, The more that we understand, the more that we learn about our universe, the more it really does just amplify the magnitude of what God has done. A few years ago, there was a secular article where they were talking about uh, the Goldilocks principle. It's this idea, this concept uh, in the world of physics where they look at our universe, and they see just how all of these little details, all these dials are turned just right to allow life uh, as we know it to exist. And I'm just going to read part of it uh, that involved essentially a, an interview with an astronomer, Dr. Sandra Faber. And uh, 
this is a, an interview between a reporter and her, and they're in Hawaii uh, studying stars, because I guess that's where you best study stars, Hawaii. Yeah, sure. Um, I'd probably make that pitch as well if I was an astronomer. Uh, but I'm just going to read part of this article. It says that at midnight, astronomer Sandra Faber wrapped up her observations and we stepped out for a few minutes under the night sky. And Faber said, I take comfort. I take comfort in the fact that this is a beautiful universe and that we belong here and that we fit, Faber mused. This is our home. Faber, a professor at the University of California, Santa Cruz, was referring to the idea that there is something uncannily perfect about our universe, that the laws of physics and the values of physical constants seem, as Goldilocks said, just right. That if even just one of a host of physical properties of the universe had been different, stars, planets, and galaxies would never have formed, that life would have been all but impossible. Take, for instance, the neutron. It is... 1.00137841870 times heavier than the proton, which is what allows it to decay into a proton, electron, and neutrino, a process that determined the relative abundances of hydrogen and helium after the Big Bang and gave us a universe dominated by hydrogen. If the neutron-to-proton mass ratio were even slightly different, we would be living in a very different universe, one perhaps in which protons decayed into neutrons rather than the other way around. Imagine (laughs) leaving the universe without atoms. So, in fact, we wouldn't be living here at all. We wouldn't even exist. And examples of such fine-tuning abound. Tweak the charge of an electron, for instance, or change the strength of the gravitational force or the strong nuclear force just a smidgen, and the universe would look very different and likely be lifeless. The challenge for physicists... Okay, catch this. The challenge for physicists is explaining why. Such physical parameters are what they are. So that night in Hawaii, Faber declared that to her there were only two possible explanations for fine-tuning. One is that there is a God and that God made it that way, she said. But for Faber, an atheist, divine intervention is not the answer. The only other approach that makes any sense is to argue that there really is an infinite or at least very big, ensemble of universes out there, and we are in one of them, she said. And she said, this is why we need the Avengers. (laughs) Not really. I made up that part. Uh, But why? Why? Why does she land on a multiverse explanation? It's because when looking at the, the state of our universe, when looking at the state of our the physical reality of where we live, the odds of all of those dials being perfectly set for life to exist is astronomically unlikely. So we have a God. We can take comfort in the fact that we have a God who has has arranged creation so perfectly, so particularly. And this serves as a comfort, especially when we are frustrated by the uncontrollable. When we are frustrated by the circumstances of life that we simply do not have power over. We can't control the decisions that other people make. Even if they're small people who live in our home, we cannot control what they do. 
We cannot control the response or the attitudes of our coworkers, of our roommates, of our classmates. We, we cannot control uh, the circumstances of life. We can control uh, the spread of, of one virus or the other. We can't control uh, the, the return on certain investments. We can't control so much of this world. And many times that, that lack of control can frustrate us. And it can create pain and struggle and strife in our hearts. We cannot prepare for every possibility. Therefore, we should take comfort in the knowledge that our God has actually put all of these things in place. That he allows it to run a certain course. That he has arranged our universe in a way that, that is still actually under his control. This is the way it's put in Proverbs, that a person plans his course, but the Lord directs his steps. We should make plans. We should seek to be faithful with what's in front of us, to, to work and, and see, you know, pursue excellence in every endeavor. And yet, what we're reminded of repeatedly in Scripture is that we have a God who is actually over all these things. And that should be a comfort to us. We still can make incredibly meaningful decisions. God has made us in His image to do just that. But nothing is outside of His control. That's why Jesus looked at his disciples and he says, you don't have to fear the world because I've already overcome it. God has put all, this thing, all of these things in place. There's no authority over you that God did not put there. There's no event that, that God is not ultimately able to step into and change and, and move for his own glory. So we can be comforted and trust in God's arrangement. And, and what's so beautiful is that Isaiah 40 is clear that it's not just that God arranged these things and then let it run its course, but that he is, in fact, still very much aware of what is taking place, that he's still very much seeing us in every circumstance. If you'll jump with me down to verse 25 of chapter 40, we're again still talking about the nature of our God. And he says, to whom can you compare me? To whom do I resemble, says the Holy One. He says, look at the sky. Who created all these heavenly lights? He is the one who leads out their ranks and he calls them all by name. There's an imagery of of a general leading his troops into battle. And so when he calls them, he says, imagine if the stars were in fact, you know, part of the heavenly, they were the armies of the Lord. He calls them by name. He leads out. And when he calls them by name, because of his absolute power and awesome strength, not one of them is missing. In other words, no one's a or no one's absent. No one's missing in action. He says, the Lord has named these stars. He knows them. He's aware of what's going on. And this is, I think, really important incredible that he uses stars as an example because I mean, we, we are now aware of the fact that there are billions and trillions of stars that exist in our universe. And God calls them all by name. He has this incredible awareness, this perfect awareness of what's going on. And, and the fact that he would name the stars, I think is really inspiring because we look at our own ability to name stars and it is very, very lacking, right? We start, we, maybe we have a few cool names like Beetlejuice, Cool, right? That's a pretty cool star name. But, but at this point in our scientific endeavors, we've, when we find stars, we're like, well, okay, that was, I don't know, BX900E12. Right? Like I, that's, just, that's what we come up with. Because we have recognized we are incapable 
of naming all of these stars, of knowing what's really going on in all of the universe. And yet, our God has arranged all of it, and he calls them by name. And when he does this, it should make us realize that, that why do we say, why do you say, Jacob, why do you say, Israel, that the Lord is not aware of what is happening to me, that my God is not concerned with my vindication? Isaiah is calling out this, this lie that we can buy into, that somehow we've escaped the Lord's sight. It says that this is a God who has arranged the heavens, that has put all, everything in its place, that is so large and so powerful that literally when it talks about him arranging the heavens, he says he measures it with a span, meaning from his thumb to his pinky is how he can measure the entirety of our universe. That God who names all the stars, who's aware of all, how could you possibly imagine? How could you bind to the lie that God is not aware of what's happening to you, that you've somehow escaped his notice, that he's not holding you in his eye? Isaiah is saying that's simply not true. That our God is concerned. That our God sees our need. He sees us in every single situation. And so we can take comfort in our God's perfect awareness of our lives and of our world. I think this is important, especially important in those moments when we are fearful of the unknowable. Because we don't know what tomorrow may bring. We don't know what is happening this afternoon. We, we cannot predict. We can, we can make our guesses. We can try to make plans. But the truth is that we ultimately do not know with certainty what's around the corner. And that can create a lot of fear in our hearts and in our minds. It can create a lot of doubt and, and concern. Some of us can be paralyzed even by that fear. So what Isaiah is trying to impress upon the people of God is he's saying you should take comfort in that fear. In the midst of that fear, you should take comfort in the Lord. It's the same message that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He told them, do not be anxious about anything, but instead in every situation through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, tell your requests to God. He says, God knows what's going on. Right? It's not like he's going to be, he doesn't really, he doesn't need your update. It's not like you, you come to the Lord and, and explain to God, this is what's going on. He's like, oh my gosh, she said, wouldn't it? What? Oh my God. He, that's not what's taking place. But for our benefit, right? It's for our benefit that we come to the Lord and we express our need. We, we make our petitions. We, we hopefully maintain in that a, a sense of gratitude and thanksgiving, aware of all that God has done for us. And yet we still make those requests known. And what happens is in those moments, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will then guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And this is a really simple encouragement, but as simple as it is, it is so easy to forget. I know for myself personally, Monday morning, Sunday, and Sunday night and Monday morning, I, I, was, I was in a rough emotional state. And I sat down with another pastor here on staff on Monday, and we had a really great conversation where he, he you know, directed me to Second Corinthians 2, which is this beautiful passage that talks about how we, the, we, we serve the God of all comfort. He's the God of comfort. And he allows us to suffer and to walk through affliction so that we might receive his comfort and then be agents of comfort in the world. 
so we can receive that and then extend it to the people around us when they face need, when they face struggle, when they face affliction. But what's so key in those moments of need is that we actually bring it to the Lord, is that we actually ask for it, right? Paul wouldn't give this charge unless he knew there was an opportunity, there is a chance for us to make the wrong decision, for us to, instead of taking that need to the Lord, to just kind of hold it close to ourselves. And I realized in that moment on Monday that that's exactly what I had been doing, that in the midst of my pain, in the midst of my frustration, in the midst of my doubts and my concerns, that I, was, I hadn't given it over to the Lord. Even as I was just you know, recognizing my, my fear and, and my doubts, even as I was recognizing the need in my life, I, I was not, in fact, open-handedly going to the Lord and asking him to step in. I wasn't asking him to give strength where I was weak. I wasn't asking him for comfort where I was in so much pain. It's a simple truth. It's easy to forget. Or it's easy to run in the other direction in bitterness and frustration. But the truth, the the charge in Scripture is very clear. In those moments of need, we, we should take him to the Lord because he has promised to be faithful, to give that comfort, to meet that need. Because we worship a God who is somehow big enough to create all of the universe and yet focused Enough to care about every single thing within it. Every living thing is within his notice. That's why Jesus, when he looked at his disciples, he says, you don't need to fret and worry. He says, look at the birds, right? Look at the flowers. The birds, they, they eat, they're fed, they, they're, they're cared for. The flowers, they're clothed in splendor. He says, why then are you so concerned about yourselves? Don't you know that you are more valuable to the Lord of the universe? You are more valuable than the sparrows of the field. God is aware of your need. He sees you in that situation. He sees you in that struggle and he wants to step in. And this is what's so incredible about our God. is not just that he's watching from afar, but that he's choosing. He promises that he will be active, that he's walking alongside of us every step of the way. Isaiah closes out this chapter, if you hop down to verse 28, with this kind of concluding thought. It's concluding statement saying, don't you know, haven't you heard that the Lord is an eternal God, the creator of the whole earth. He does not grow tired. He does not grow weary. There's no limit to his wisdom. He's bringing us back to that original truth, that original comfort. We have a God who is all powerful, who is all knowing, who, who is created and placed everything exactly where it belongs, who, who, who sees everything that's taking place. He says, and he gives strength. Not only does he see the need, but he steps into it. He gives strength to those who are tired, to the ones who lack power. He gives renewed energy. Even youths get tired and weary. Even strong men, men men clumsily stumble. He says, it doesn't matter where you're at. You can look at the, the people in the prime of their life, they're earning their maximum, you know, earning potential. They're in wonderful health. They've got all the power, all the prestige, all the position that they would ever want or need. It says no one is immune from the fact that they will still at times be tired. They will still grow weary. They will still stumble in this world. None of us will ever walk through life fully sufficient, fully capable to handle every situation we ever encounter. That's simply not true. I think the more years we spend on this earth, the more we're reminded of this truth. 
that no one has it all together. No one has all the answers. No one is strong in every moment. So thanks be to God that those who wait for the Lord's help will find renewed strength, that they will rise up as if they had eagle's wings, that they run without growing weary, that they walk without getting tired. This wonderful closing thought, this closing verse that a lot of people commit to memory. I mean, this is a famous verse. This is something that, you know, you go to half the Christian private schools in America and they're all eagles, right? Why? Because they want to quote this verse as to why they're going to win that football game, right? That's what it's all about. And it's, it is a really, it's a beautiful picture and imagery and it's one that, you know, when you read it naturally, kind of first glance, um, you know, it almost seems like it's this kind of falling action that it's, you know, you rise up like eagle's wings and you run, running's pretty hard, and then you walk, right? Like, okay. Uh, it kind of feels like this gentle slope uh, in terms of, you know, physical exertion. I'm assuming flying is high up there. And so, but one, one scholar, as I was reading through this, made this beautiful, wonderful point saying that, you know, in his mind, that it actually feels like it's building to a Christian. It's actually building in its statements, in its analogies, because he's saying, I mean, how, how easy is it? Because there, there's something uh, more simple about the fact, you know, that, that moment of just rising to the occasion, that, that you know, almost anyone can, can have that one moment of, of triumph where it's like, oh, there was this high need and I, and I met it. Right? Or maybe like there's a short season, there's that weekend, there's that conversation that's really hard and you can just run through it. And you, you're, you're great just getting through that, that short little brief stint, that, that one you know, stretch of the track. And yet, how amazing is it that our God has not just promised to show up in these singular high energy moments, but that we can in fact trust him as we walk week to week, day to day, moment by moment, without growing weary. He says, what is really the hardest of these challenges? Like I, I would argue it's just that regular walk through life. It's something that a lot of us, I mean, we, we've seen this, we, we resonate with this truth. That this world, that its brokenness, that its pains, its sufferings, its unpredictability, its uncontrollableness, over time, it can just wear us down. So how wonderful is it, how comforting can it be that we have a God who has promised to be active with us every step of the way. To provide strength where we're weak. To provide comfort where we're in pain. And this should be incredibly extra comforting in those moments when we are failed continually by the unreliable. We will all reach moments where we recognize, man, I can't put my full hope in this other person or in this organization, in this company, or even in myself. Even in my moments of greatest need, I myself will fail myself. I will always fail to avoid failure in my own life. So we need the Lord's provision. This is what Paul points to when he wrote a letter to the church in Corinth. Talking to these believers, saying that, that now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death 
came through a man. The resurrection of the dead also came through a man. Paul is saying this is the incredible plan of the Lord. That he saw our failure. He knew that we would fail. He placed man and woman, Adam and Eve, he put them in this perfectly constructed little garden. Right? He'd arranged everything just right. It was, it was very good in his eyes. And yet in that perfect environment, Adam and Eve, they chose rebellion. They chose to walk a path that God had not laid out. They chose their own will over the Lord's. And so in their rebellion, they brought sin. They brought destruction. They brought separation, not just between each other, not between themselves and the world, but also between themselves and the Lord. And yet in the midst of that failure, in that moment, God shows up, he talks to them, says, what happened? They try to skirt the issue and he says, no, this is what happened. You have rebelled. You have brought death into this world. And yet in that moment, God in the exact same conversation promised to them to walk with them in providing a way back to that perfection that they had lost. And it wasn't going to be through a new set of rules that they would always fail to follow, but it would be through a relationship that was eternally secure. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. God told Adam and Eve in that very first moment, there will come a day where I will send the one who will conquer, No, is Jesus Christ, who stepped out of heaven and onto earth to live the perfect life that none of us can live, to die the death that we all deserve because of our sin, because of our mistakes. And when God raised him from the dead three days later, he proved once and for all that he was truly the way and the truth and the life, that he was the way to find reconciliation, to find restoration with the God of the universe who made us, who arranged all things, who sees us, who was calling us to himself. Jesus Christ came, lived, died, and rose so that we might be raised with him, so that we might experience that eternal life, so that we can just call on his name and in doing so find ourselves free from condemnation, free from the consequences of that, that sin that otherwise was holding us captive. And even as we trust in him, we recognize that this world still will not be perfect. That even as his followers, when he looked at his people, he didn't ever promise them a perfect life in this world. He's, the only thing he ever promised to them was that they would suffer, that they would face adversity, that they would in fact die. Many of his closest followers died because of their allegiance to him. So when Jesus Christ looks at us, he doesn't say, I mean, expect everything to be perfect and wonderful, but he says, expect to suffer, expect to be rejected. And yet in the same breath, We see that our God has told us that he will comfort us in the midst of it. That he has promised to use those events for his glory and our good. And if that's what we land upon, if that's where our conviction lies, if that's where our faith rests, then we can be a people who find comfort We find comfort in our God who has arranged all of our world, is currently aware of all of our needs, and has promised he will be active in all of our lives, in every moment, in every situation. But it still hurts. It still is painful to walk through suffering, to walk through the consequences of sin and rebellion. And we can't answer. I can't answer for every tragedy. But what I know, 
what I can hold on to, what I can just try to grasp and not let go of, is the character of my God. I know his character. And I know his power. And so I can choose to trust him. I can choose that. And it's a choice that I've questioned at times. It's a choice that that certainly doesn't come without doubt. But it's a choice that I've never regretted. Ever. So as we prepare to worship, as we prepare to respond in in one more song, my encouragement is very simple. That we would be a people who choose to trust in our God, who choose to bring him our needs that he sees, that he's aware of, that he's allowing for a reason, and yet we still bring them to him, expressing our need, asking for his grace, asking for his comfort, trusting that he'll provide. And sometimes the healing, sometimes the comfort, it's, it's slow. Sometimes it's a long process. Sometimes it's quick. But many times that, that healing doesn't, it's, it's not brought to completion while we're here in this world. And yet what we can trust is that with our God, that comfort, that healing is never, ever partial. That's our hope. So before we sing, if you would, pray with me. God, we are a people who are in desperate need of your love and your grace. And God, you have shown us an incredible mercy in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That God, you did not demand us to to reach some level, some threshold of perfection performance of perfection that God that you do not expect us to to meet you part way but that God you see us in our need and you move towards us that God that you took the initiative that God you made the effort and so if you would some of us just need to pray and ask the Lord right now for the comfort that he's promised Some of us are struggling with an issue or a decision or a consequence or a fear. and We we should just take this moment in the quiet of our hearts to ask the Lord to, to step in, to be strong where we're weak. Others of us, maybe we don't have a pressing need or struggle in our hearts, and that is awesome. Praise the Lord for that. But that, what that means is that we are in a position to then be used by God. We have the freedom to, to take the comfort that we're experiencing and extend it to others. We can be the hands and feet of our Lord in meeting the needs of bringing encouragement to the people around us. So maybe some of us are praying for comfort and others of us, we can pray in this moment, God, lift my eyes to see the needs around me. God, give me your awareness. God, help me see the the conversation that could take place with my classmate, my workmate, God, my family member. God, help me see where I'm called to be your witness and be your ambassador in this world. Ask him for that right now.